You're listening to a 95BFM podcast. We're joined in the studio with Dr. Kushla McGovern. Kia ora, Kushla. Kia ora. How are you today? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me. That's good to hear. So this is your first Dear Science, solo Dear Science. Would you mind just quickly introducing yourself a bit for our listeners? Um, right, so I'm a, what's called a senior research fellow in the Department of Physics here at University of Auckland. So that basically means I research rather than lecture. Um, and I'm actually a chemist by training, so I kind of hide out in the physics department. And as you'll see today, most of the like, science stories that excited me over the past week actually have a biological bend to them. So I don't stick to one discipline at all. Right, so kind of like a Russian spy of chemistry <laughs> almost. All right. Well, first up, I wanted to ask you about scientists who have been 3D printing tissue that has some of the functionality of human brain tissue. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yes, this is really exciting, right? Like we all know the brain is a really complex organ. And um, for us to understand and develop new drugs and understand disease, we really need to understand it on the cellular level. And that's really hard. Like if we use animal models... They're not exactly the same as us, obviously, and there's a lot of ethical considerations. So there's been a lot of work about developing models in the lab that you can use to study processes. And so what happened over the last sort of week, a paper was published where they basically made a gel that they could seed with stem cells and then 3D print. And while this is really amazing is because brain is soft tissue. It's really hard to have a gel that you can kind of print that it's not too stiff but it's stiff enough that it maintains some structure and so that's where they have been really smart with the mixture that they've made and then basically you know if you know a 3d printer where you've got your filament that's plastic instead of doing that they've got this jelly mush that can be extruded through a needle and prints this really thin layer like 50 microns which is less than kind of the average human hair thickness Um, And then they're basically putting this gel that's got these stem cells in into a bath that's got some nutrients and some chemicals that are called neurotrophic factors. And what these do is they tell the stem cells, right, you want to go become this because stem cells are undifferentiated. They haven't chosen what they're going to do in life yet. Um, And so by doing this, what they were able to produce is this tissue that had neuronal and glial cells, which are the two main types of cells in your brain. But what's even better is that they actually formed a network, which is what happens in your brain. You have these network of cells that communicate with each other, and that's why we can do stuff. And so they were able to show this. And so that has really exciting implications down the line. Yeah, so what are some of those implications for the field? So that's like things, like if you think about um, development of new pharmaceuticals to treat neurodiseases and um, things, you don't... You don't want to test it on people straight off. You don't necessarily want to use the animals to test. So you can start to do some of this initial testing on these sorts of models in the lab. And so you can start to identify what are the good sort of molecular candidates for as new drugs and what aren't. And then you can also, like this is still a model. It's still in development, obviously. But as time goes along and they um, research more and better develop it, you can probably start to doing like disease models and stuff like this as well. That is really fascinating. I was also wondering, so there's something else going on with researchers are using satellite imaging to estimate coral reef biodiversity. What does this mean for those of us who don't know a lot about this area? 
Cool. So biodiversity is just, it's a way of describing how many different types of species of plants and animals are in an area. And so it's really important because the more biodiverse an area is, the more likely it is to handle stress like climate change, right? So we know that we have an extinction problem globally. Um, humans have been pretty rough on the ecosystems. Uh, and so it's really important for us to understand the biodiversity we have in various parts of the planet now. What you typically do to figure out biodiversity is you have to go out into the field and count. Like you count how many fish, you count how many different corals. And if you're doing this underwater, you need scuba divers. And it's really takes a lot of time and is really costly. So what could you do otherwise? Like how, what's another way that we could potentially measure this biodiversity? We have a lot of satellites around the planet. Can we use this remote sensing? And so that's what they've done. They've basically taken data from various satellites and they've determined the different habitats in an area. So is it rocky? Is it uh, coral? Is it onshore? Is it deeper water? And they've determined how different in an area, how many different sorts of habitats do you have? And then the more different habitats you have, the more likely you are to have more different species because they've each got... Species kind of tend to, they develop a niche where they live, right? They, they like this area, so they'll kind of procreate and this population will grow in that area. Um, and so that's what they're doing. So they're, gonna, they're not using the satellite images to count all the different animals. They're using it to determine what's the, the topography like, what's the land like, if it's terrestrial, what's the underwater area like, and then using how much that changes to give a measure of how many different species you might have. And speaking of species, scorpions, what's going on there? Now, I really love this paper, mainly because of its um, title, which I'll read out. Hitching a ride on a scorpion, the first record of ferrocy of a miramicophile uh, pseudoscorpion on a miramicophile scorpion. And it's, scorpions are cool, they're scary, but they're cool, because... They're fluorescent. So if you wave a UV light over a scorpion, it glows green and blue. And it's, that's really cool. And it's basically because they've got these molecules in their um, cuticle and the outer layer that fluoresces. And so there was this um, researcher who was out following ant trails to find scorpions because the scorpion that he was looking for, it uses the ant trails to get back to the ant nest and it goes into the ant nest and it lives in there because it likes eating the ant larvae. Um, and the ants seemed to let it in which is a bit weird but what he noticed was that there were some black spots on the scorpion and he's like what are they and then over it's taken them five years to figure this out but there's these little things called pseudoscorpions and that's what was sitting on the scorpion and it's basically a pseudoscorpion is much smaller Um, it's about Average is about three millimeters. It's got the pincers of a scorpion, it's got the eight legs, but it doesn't have the tail and it's not fluorescent. And what they think is happening is that these pseudoscorpions basically hitch a ride on the scorpion to get into the ant nest so that once they're in the ant nest, they can go eat the mites and the small prey that are hanging out in the ant nest because it turns out ant nests are like a buffet for other animals. So, yeah. Interesting. I feel like I can see the Pixar movie already. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kushla. And thank you to Motat. And thank you, Science. We'll see you in two weeks, Kushla. See you in two weeks.
Well, I didn't know that before. Dear Science, thanks to MOTAT, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.